I don't mm. want to be overly personal, but mm. obviously you're you're a leader mm. of men at this point. Mm. Um, how? A very abstract question, really, but how might you have felt if you possibly led those men to their death? Was that too much to ask, Frank? No. Again, I think you've asked a very pertinent question, and I don't think anyone's asked that question before. Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. And the voice you just heard is of Frank Portinari. I read Frank's book, and I thought to myself, I really need to meet this guy, and I'm so glad I did. On paper, and I'm sure Frank wouldn't mind me saying this, he ought to be really intimidating. In previous lives, he's been a football hooligan, a member of the National Front. He is the ex-commander of the London UDA, the Elsa Defence Association, and he went to prison for supplying guns. Now, what I love about this conversation is that Frank was able to offer an extraordinary and very valuable insight into who he was at various points of his life and why he did what he did. And the reason it's valuable is because he's now a peace advocate and he tells young people, look, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Don't end up on the same treadmill that I ended up on. Someone on social media said, well, Frank isn't a criminal, so why is he going on your podcast? Well, I called the podcast Conversations with Criminals because that was the best title I could come up with. Honestly, I never use the term criminal as a pejorative or negative term, and I never would. If I'd have taken violent revenge against the guy who attacked Martha, my partner, and nearly killed her, I could have ended up in jail. And I suppose technically I would have been a criminal too. So please, no offense. I'm also aware of how sensitive the topic of the troubles in Northern Ireland is. I know there's a ceasefire, but it's still something that's very emotive. And I do get that. And I'm anticipating that somebody will say, well, actually, there's two sides to every story. And do you know what? I would listen to somebody who was in the IRA, who went to prison for their beliefs as well. And I wouldn't label them a criminal either. That isn't what my podcast is about. It's just gaining an insight into people who've led really interesting lives. And it doesn't get more interesting than Frank Portinari, I promise you. Frank is currently working on his second book, and I'll put everything related to Frank in the notes on the podcast. You can also go to his website, uh, frankportinari.co.uk. You'll be able to hear from the interview that Frank is a great speaker, so it's it's no surprise that he's being invited to speak at various events as well. We start off we're talking about the vicar who was at this prison that Frank was in. And he's such an extraordinary sounding character. And that's partly because of Frank's ability to paint pictures with words. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you do too. I found it utterly fascinating. This is Frank Portinari. His name was the Reverend Roger Green. Being a vicar, we always called him the pine liquor. You know, that was his, that was, that's, he, he got used to that, you know. And uh, a very streetwise man, had a motorbike, would go to nightclubs by invitation of certain villains. Uh, you know, very much a man of the people. He'd probably made quite a good politician, I think, quite honestly. Okay. Because he did, he, he did have a good rapport with people. And was it was it curiosity on his part that led him to go there? Were they leading him astray? I don't know this for fact, but I kind of suspect, well, if he expected them to trust him, you know, 
he had to trust them to a certain degree as well. So to go into their world, if you like, I don't think he necessarily went around trying to convert people or save people's souls, but he, he was pretty good at pointing out ways they could maybe possibly lead a better life, but but not forcing it down your throat, if you like. He made you question you rather than him question you. Because I'm guessing that if you're in prison that, not all vicars nail it, do they? I'm guessing. Does it take us? It sounds like he has sort of special qualities. Then I think that's probably because he came from a very working class background himself. Right. So I think he understood the hardships of people, and what may have led them to why they were in prison in the first place. I think it's a bit like teachers. If you if you take a teacher, if you take a person and they go to college or even university, and they've come from the home counties. Uh, they pass their exams and they, you know, they become a teacher, and then you stick them in a working class school, you know, yeah. in the centre of London. They're in for a big shock. Yeah, of course, they're very in for a very, very big shock. And I think that he he could um, acquaint himself with people because he come from those roots, if you like. Yeah, and a lot of vicars tended to be quite timid. Uh, and very liberal, which is understandable because part of the doctrine, you know, is, is to, you know, it's, it's about forgiveness and so on. So I get that, but you 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 got the feeling, yes, eventually, you know, Roger would forgive you, but he'd kind of tell you first before he forgave you right. what he thought about you. So yeah. you know, and you respected that. I mean, that was a good thing. Yeah, I th- I was going to say that um, in. In your world at that particular time, would you have had a respect for someone? Because you mentioned that he kind of said to you, "Look, Frank, I've sussed you out, mate, more or less." Mm, yeah. And would and that that takes a lot for someone to do. I mean, I'm going, we're going about how many years now, sort of jail type wise? That would have been ninety four. Yeah. So I'd probably been in Swaleside on the Isle of Sheppey for it was about fourteen months, I would right. say, in that particular prison. And and there's this guy who's actually got the balls then, because it would take balls, I think, mm. to, to say to you, I think I know you. Mm. And you said that he, that you were talking about the, the well, the sex offender. Mm. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, what it was, I I applied to be one of the listeners, which um, is basically, you're not a counsellor as such. Right. You're not necessarily allowed to give advice. You're you're meant to listen. So you can, you encourage people to talk. There are certain ways you can still give advice, but it's not meant to be obvious. So the first time I applied to do this, I sat in a room with a variety of people, including some religious people as well, cross-section of religious people. When we got onto that touchy subject of sex offenders, the company that I was in at the time were pretty much... Fuck that. There's no way I'm having anything to do with any of them. Which kind of, you know, instantly, you know, stopped you from becoming a listener. So before becoming too vocal, I sat and listened and thought, well, if you want to genuinely help 99% of the prison population, you know, you may have to sacrifice a couple of principles, you know. Okay. So I did uh, eventually become a listener. Very fulfilling. Uh, I'm glad I did. I like to think I helped quite a lot of people out. There were Category A villains, you know, very well respected, who who couldn't write a letter to their family. 
So once they told, and they'd be in tears, they'd be quite ashamed of it. You know, they wouldn't want people to know. Uh. So the next day, now I, now not being a listener, not having your listener hat on, you could go back to them and say, would you like me to write a letter? Uh, and it even went as far as writing poetry and for Valentine's Day, you know. So through that, through that process, one day a, a particular listener had a visit at the last minute and he said, well, I'll step in for him. And I said, yes, I will. I walked into this particular, so it was a new prisoner. So it was a, it was a kind of a standard thing. Although they'd been given advice by the officers, you could just add to that, you know, if, if you needed tobacco, go and see this person. If you needed phone cards, go and see this person. It was even better in my case because I was the person you came to see for the tobacco and the yeah. phone cards. So there was an interest there as well, you know. Um, but anyway, so I walked in and I instantly knew that this fellow was a sex offender. I instantly. There, there's just a kind of... There's, there's a dress sense and there's like an aura about, you know, about people. We spoke. I asked him what prison he'd come from, what his offence was. I wasn't convinced. I thought you wouldn't be in this prison. And I asked if he wanted to do any, uh, did he have any intentions of doing any courses while he was there? And he said he intended to do a theology course. And that was almost confirmation for me that, you know, he he was basically going to hide behind God. You know, I didn't know this, that he'd already spoken to the to the reverend and had, had said this to him and the reverend actually confirmed that to me at a later stage and said the bastard was actually going to you know choose to hide behind God wow mm. and yeah. he meant it and he said it as as uh, as clearly as I would say it you know there was that's where he was a man of the people if you like yeah sure you know very much so what a fascinating guy and what mm. what happened to, to the reverend then well, well, I left. Well, I, I, I basically went to another prison after sure. that. I would assume he, you know, he'd retired at, at some yeah. at some stage. Uh, but very, yeah, very, very respected man. And I, I used to go to his. He'd have a chaplain's discussion group on a Wednesday night, and uh, I would go along. Probably not the right term, but I'd be devil's advocate. Yeah, I'd ask him some, you know, very awkward questions, which. I think he liked the idea because some people wouldn't ask questions, you know. Yeah. They just sat and listened. It was a, it was a, it was something to keep, take them out of their cells and get them off the wing, you know, a bit of, you know, a solitude if you like. And um, one particular night, we had an outreach group came along. So there were people from the community and a few ex-offenders that had, had joined various schemes and so on. And on this particular occasion, I sat next to a, an Irish fella, and we chatted, and you know got on quite well and the next day Roger came to my cell and he said oh did you enjoy last night did you enjoy last night's discussion I said yeah very, very much so and they were a nice group of people he said oh you seem to get on very well <laughs> I think his name was Mick I mean you know that yeah. would be too stereotypical sure. I think his name was Mick Yeah. and I said yeah he was a nice chap I said he was, he was a nice fella and he said uh, you do know he was an ex-IRA man yeah and I said, uh, no. And he, he went, uh, well, what would your response have been if you knew that last night? And uh, I said I'd have probably punched him. Yeah. Because that was my mindset still at that time. What would Mick have done if he'd have known that you were UDA? Possibly. I don't think he'd have done anything quite. Because I think he got to that stage in his life where he'd had time to to think things through Right. If you like. Yeah, I get you. Um, so, so Roger sort of, pr- kept, you know, pressed me on this. He said, well, you know, you, you, 
He said, well, the reason I didn't uh, you know, say that beforehand because I, I, I thought you might be standoffish with him. You know, there might be a, um, an atmosphere between you. He said, but what I did want to prove is that if you take away the preconceived ideas of people, you know, the perceptions of people, yeah. you can get on. So he he'd basically taught me. I didn't know he'd set me up almost. You know, <laughs> he taught me a, he taught me a, a, a valuable lesson. Yeah. So, you know, next time there was an outreach group, I studied everybody thinking, gee, all right, you know, is, is, is she, you know, so he was a clever man, you know, he, he, he not only knew his Bible, he knew, he knew people as well. Yeah. Know, and, and that's why I say that's why he was so respected. And you are prepared to actually learn from those lessons as well, which takes a lot of humility, I guess, doesn't it? Well, Does it if you, if, if you, look, if you've been in position, a position of power and influence, and and uh, and respect, and people keep pumping you with that. Yeah, you don't question it, do you? You, you think, well, if if um, if that many people trust you, there must be something about you. There mustn't there. There must be. So not necessarily um, vanity, but certainly you you certainly recognised that there was a certain amount of kudos that went with the position because nobody ever, ever told you you was wrong and the more the more extreme and the more militant people wanted to be and you were prepared to go to those limbs the more respect you got so you need somebody to come along and find a few chinks in your armor if you like and say you know maybe there's another side to you Maybe there's other aspects of you that you should be you should be looking at, and uh, you know, to, for your own benefit and the benefit of your, of your family. There is another side to, and I and I've seen just in in the book, and I mentioned it when we were chatting earlier. Just a moment that really, really got me was when your wife bought the wedding ring to prison, and as mm. I said, I, I I had nothing but admiration, but it really it. I, I don't know. I did did something to my heart. That's the only way I can describe mm. it. What an you know. So there is another side, isn't there? Well, what it had been, we'd been together since we were fifteen. You know, sixth um, of August, nineteen seventy-two. This girl walked past the football pitch. She was one of four sisters, and I could just see she was different. I could just see there was something about her that wasn't the same as all the local girls, and. Uh, didn't think for one moment she'd entertain me. I, I lived in a house of an outside toilet, you know, tin bath on the wall. Yeah. Rough and ready. Uh, she was very well spoken and they lived in the flats. It, it, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that much more grandiose, but she did have an inside toilet and a bathroom. Wow, know. there we go. So she was posh as yeah. far as I was concerned. Yeah. Anyway, I, I didn't think for one moment she'd entertain me and um, I'm, I'm grateful she did because she's been my guardian angel ever since, you know. We, we had our first daughter. We didn't actually get married until my our second daughter. And one of the reasons was because whenever I was working... If somebody, if if she phoned up and it's just your girlfriend, people tend to treat her or treated her as just my girlfriend. If it was somebody's wife that phoned up, there was more importance yeah. put on that. So, okay. so we did eventually get we did eventually yeah. get married. 
and because most people assumed we were because we've been together that long but we'd never bothered with wedding rings as such uh, eventually i did get her a wedding ring i wasn't particularly bothered i didn't particularly wear jewelry anyway what happened was was when i was first arrested i was on remand and i was on category a winston green in birmingham and she suddenly said to me on our first open visit and when i say open i mean in the sense it wasn't behind a screen yes it, it was still in a room secluded from the rest of the general prison population and she said, I'd like you to have a wedding ring because I want people to know that you've got somebody out there that cares about you. Wow. Yeah. It was coming up to Christmas and was very, very dubious about receiving it. And I said to her, look, when you come up on the next visit, have it on your finger. When we say goodbye, we can't embrace as such. I said, kind of you know, pass it to me and I'll put it on my on my finger. She left and then I went through the process of where you go into a room and you have to strip everything off. And I mean everything. You put a completely separate lot of clothes on. Right. And this particular screw officer said to me, have you bought an item? Oh, no. He says to me, have you bought anything back off your visit? And I said, no. And he said, are you sure about that? And I said, I'm positive. And... He said, well, I know you've bought a ring back and I want you to give it to me. And I said, no, I refuse to give it to him. He then said I would basically be put on a charge or, you know, he would talk to the wing governor, etc. And I quite forcibly said to him that there was no way was I going to take this ring off. And I said to him, I, you know, I didn't care whether it was the governor or the Queen of England, this this ring was now not coming off. And the only way you would get it off, you would have to cut my finger off. And I was quite adamant about that. That, that, was, that was no idle threat. That wasn't temper. Uh, that was from the heart, if you like. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was that adamant. I want to ask you something else about prison, because you, you mentioned in the book about two Kurdish guys <laughs> who... You know, there was a bomb yep. that went off outside a Turkish information centre and yep. you said that there was concern about that someone might put a hit on them. Now, mm. it's a phrase that I hear people sort of talk about an awful lot. And it, now, is it a thing? I mean, it must be a thing. But but can you actually, if you're in jail, can you can you put a contract on somebody's life? Am I naive in asking that? Well, if, if, you, t if you take into account the idea of going back to when I was first arrested and I was on remand, yeah. that when you were put on to Category A, I was on, a, on a, a wing that had 16 cells. Right. Only eight cells were ever used at one time. And that's because it could be every other day, every other week. They move you around. You cannot plan to escape. Right. Because the idea is, is, is if you've got contacts or you're part of an organisation that has the ways and means to possibly free you, you can't plan you can't plan them. So in that sense, when you're in that environment, you're quite safe as well, because equally nobody can get at you, can they? Right. Okay. Yeah. So so it's quite strange. So that when you go to, when you are actually on the open wings, you are more vulnerable. Yeah. And quite simply. You know, on a visit, you can say you see the fella sitting over there on that table. 
if you want information, you could you, you can you know you can question that person's visitors. You can you could get the registration of the visitors' cars. You could there's, there's way there's, you know there's ways and means. <laughs> You're clearly not going to say it over the phone, you know. Yes. But you, you, there are ways and means. Basically, it, if you if you wanted to. Okay. And sometimes it's just done internally because there are internal conflicts, you know, right. uh, over drugs or you know money or all, all, all kinds of reasons. It could be it could be old problems that have. That have been festering outside of prison yeah. and erupt inside prison, where you're already volatile yourself. You know, on this occasion, these two Kurdish militants came in, and there were quite a lot of Turkish inmates at the time. They clearly had some sway because they would had been major drug dealers, importers, whatever. So they had their own little bit of respect, and. They had, I didn't know this at the time, they paid for these two fellas to get hurt. Right, okay. And the way that was done, and I'm so pleased I didn't actually witness this because I can assure you just hearing it was enough. We were allowed to cook our own food, so you had access, obviously, to the kitchens. This Kurdish fella had gone downstairs, he was in the kitchen, and he bent down to take something out of the oven. I think previously I have described it as hot fat. It was, it was probably hot oil. was in a saucepan on the top of the, of the oven. And this fella walked up, picked it up, and poured it over this fella's back, or his head, and his back. All right. And if you've heard an animal in agony, well, you yeah. should have heard this. This was disgusting. Wow. Um, the vicar told me afterwards that they had to carry him and put him in a bath and wrap him in tin foil to keep the flesh on his bones. Uh, this might sound quite hypocritical because I'm saying I would have murdered somebody, killed somebody, assassinated somebody, call it what you will. Yeah. And at the time, I would have done it with no conscience whatsoever. I, I was that committed to my cause, if you yes. like. Yeah. So I couldn't work out how somebody could do such a barbaric act, probably for some tobacco, phone cards, some dr- I dare say some drugs, maybe an amount of cash, but to do it so nonchalantly, just walk up and do that, I, I just couldn't work that out. Were they not getting their own form of respect and kudos by doing that um, themselves? What happened was, cause, see, then the reality kicks in because the police got called in. Right. And there's certainly lots of loose tongues in prison. I include myself in this. A few people said, this fella's got to go. Because if he's capable of doing that to this fella, he's just as capable of doing it to you. What if somebody puts a price on you? He needs to go. The Turks also panicked, because if he talked, it's going to come back to them. So you had to play a little bit of a game whereby it was given the impression that if... You know, to the Turks, well, if you don't sort this problem out that you created, other people are going to deal with it, uh, and you're going to become even more embroiled in this uh, in this conspiracy, so to speak. So, what I was well, I'm being led to believe that actually one of those stuck him in the frame, right? And consequently, he then got shipped out to another prison. Whether he ever got charged with it or sentenced, I, you know, I never I never heard that on the grapevine. Okay. But that could have killed that man. So, you know, when you use the term a hit, 
It may not have been an intentional hit to kill, but it was certainly meant to scar and, and, and damage that fella for life. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and say possibly could have given him a heart attack. Yeah. The shock of it. Amazing. I wanted to ask you, when somebody goes to prison for strongly held beliefs, mm. which I think that's fair to say, yeah. that, that's how I would interpret it. Yeah. Are they treated differently? by prison staff or by by other prisoners i was treated differently in the sense that you are clearly going to meet ex-army personnel so a quick example is one christmas in swell so on the isle of Sheppey. it's their time i didn't know this i'm a novice you see i've i've had to learn you're all in bed you're all you know you're all, most of you're asleep all of a sudden, there is crash, bang, wallop, and you hear people screaming. You haven't got a clue what's going on. You're behind your door, unless you've been to prison, you know, and you know, and you know the routine. Yeah. And um, this is when they clear all the bad boys out. I didn't know this, you know, just before Christmas. I was there looking forward to getting their Christmas cards and presents. Okay. Every, all the bad boys are going to get slung out and, and put in other in other prisons. So, all of a sudden, my door comes flying over, open, there's these two, they call them like a mufti squad, they call it. They're usually six-foot-odd blokes, quite tough-looking, all dressed in black, black army boots sort of thing. Look very menacing, and sound very menacing. So, they burst into you, you know, into my cell, and I sit upright. While one of them's about to approach me, basically, they're going to spin your cell to find any contraband or any reason to get you out of the, the prison. Right. One of them is standing looking at the photographs and craft work that was on my wall, which that particular wall was stuff that had been sent to me from the maze in Belfast from other loyalist prisoners. Yeah. Well, this screw was fascinated and he said, here, mate, what are you in for? And I said, um, attempting to supply weapons to the Ulster Defence Association. Well, he, him and his colleague had lost friends at Warren Point, Cross McGlen, etc. And the conversation kind of led to, God, you need to come to Maidstone. We'll look after you. They automatically saw me as an ally. Okay. That could never have happened because I'd never been off the book long enough. The Category A book is yet to be off of it for two years. So they basically threw my mattress on the floor I said, look, as far as anyone's concerned, you've had a double-cut A spin and said their goodbyes. So, yeah, there were some benefits. There were some benefits. Some some screws could be quite vocal and say you're all as fucking bad as each other, whether you're, whether you're loyalist or Republican. Right, you're okay. all bastards. I get that. I understand that. Did you understand um, that at the time? Yeah, if to be honest, yeah. I, I, can't, I, you know, I kind of did see that. And I, and I didn't ask for favours. I didn't put myself... I didn't try to in, ingratiate myself. I can remember once um, a fellow inmate said to me, uh, a screw had gone past. I said, excuse me, God, what time's whatever happening, you know? And this fellow went to me, and this is when I was in the Midlands, so probably a little bit more you know, a bit more understanding. He said, oh, why do you call him Gov? He's not your fucking governor. I went, hold on, mate. I said, where I come from, everyone's Gov. Excuse yeah. me, Gov. Have you got the time? Excuse me, Gov, could you tell me? I said, but in the meantime, don't tell me how to speak. So that could have been a bit of a confrontation. When you talk about special treatment, it's a bit ironic because more than one person has commented to, throughout the course of today 
the, the title of your podcast and have said, well, you're not a criminal. Yeah. Right? You see? So that's a difficult one because yes. I've broken the law yeah. and I've gone to prison. So in that sense, I am a criminal. But they don't see it that way, clearly. I had my reservations about yeah, asking. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they clearly don't see it that way. I'm a little bit more philosophical about it, to be yeah. quite honest. What you cannot do, you cannot walk around prison and think you're special. You can't walk around with this kind of air of, oh, well, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a murderer. Yeah. I'm not a mugger. Yeah, I'm not a rapist. I'm special, me. You know, I'm a lawless prisoner. Now... There is a, there is a, there is something to be said for the fact that while you've got that in your head and you know who you are and you know why you're there, that does help to get you through the situation. But you can't adopt some kind of superiority and think, well, I'm better than you or more to the point, you're worse than me. That's just, that just would not work. Uh, I, I suss that out quite quickly. I'll suss that out quite quickly. Yes, there was a hierarchy, if you like, and the way I, the way I very, very quickly claimed my place within that hierarchy was the fact that I didn't smoke. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so I didn't smoke. So you were entitled to two and a half ounces of Old Hoban, which is five packs of tobacco. Yeah, that gets cut in half, and people and you know, if people want more than that, they will obviously ask me. But the idea is, is whatever you lend out, it's, it's double bubble. They pay double back. And people clearly don't want to, to pay back tobacco because one, they either smoke, but more to the point, once they bang up in the evening, they want to have a spliff. So tobacco is, you know, is, is a very, uh, it's, it's a big commodity, you know. So then you're going to the realms of, of you'll be paid back by phone cards and phone cards were two pound each. Amazing, I can't work it out why, but seven phone cards, which is clearly only £14, someone would give you a £20 note for that. And it was this kind of thing where you needed the phone cards to make to make the call, but you needed to have some money to pass out when yeah. your visitor came to pay for your drugs. So if you had the tobacco and the phone cards and the cash, you were king. Yeah. You know, and and then that, grew into budgie cages it grew into trainers the oh chain i'm wearing around my neck is is from prison is from swale side so yeah so and then people tend to want to stay in your good books don't they because they want a bit of credit yeah. I, I always thought i was generous if the people i knew who genuinely didn't have a lot i would ask them to cook me a meal but do themselves a meal as well yeah. And then give them some tobacco for it or give them some phone cards for doing it, you know. So you you kind of built a little bit of a protective barrier around yourself. Yeah. It didn't always work. There was violence eventually. And people are going to rob you, you know. They're going to try and they're going to try eventually. You've got that much. I mean, not all of it I hid in the cell because what I would do is I would I would look for the lifers who've got nothing to lose and say, look, can I store this in your cell and I'll pay you and so yeah. on. If when I was paying uh, to have the hooch made, I clearly didn't keep it in my room to brew. I kept it in lifers' rooms, you know, yeah. or cells. Did you make hooch yourself? Yes. Can you talk me through how to make hooch? I'm not, can I just say at this point, I'm not asking anyone to make any, <laughs> but I'm just it curious. It can kill you, be careful, it can well, kill yeah, you. Yeah, no, it is. I don't, um, approve, you know. I don't, there's not a government health warning yeah. on it. Uh, there should be, probably. 
No, it, it, well, it's basically water. It's all you can you know, use uh, fresh orange juice. You, you you must have a lot of sugar, right. must, obviously, for the fermentation. You must have yeast. Right. That's the commodity that, that you need, which means you've got to keep the people in the, the kitchens sweet. Yeah. Clean to get your, say, your yeast, your sugar. You can put bread in it. You can make a, like a pochine version of it. Right. You can, you know, some people will say it's the nearest thing to um, vodka. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you we used to use the, the pergles out of you know what milk pergles, you know, like the plastic innards of the you know the cardboard mm. box. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Put it in there, and then what you do is you put it under the bed, and you put it up against the the, the pipes, you know, the, the heating pipes. I did get a, an emergency call one morning when someone said you better come along to some and so sell this particular lifer, and when I walked in, he sat on his bed looking like the Tango Man. Uh, because it had exploded, oh, no. and he was <laughs> covered in his orange <laughs> liquid. It was all out the walls. Wow! And a, a screw came along and, and um, took one look, walked back up the spur, and said to me, "You're going to get that cleaned up, aren't you?" He, he knew it was, you know, my responsibility, and uh, and I had quite a good good rapport with the screws. But the proviso was no drugs, right, Frank? Yeah. You can pretty much, you know, you're you're, you're a good influence on the wing. <laughs> so you can pretty much get away with things, but no drugs, which was quite easy for me because I never had anything to do with drugs. Yeah. So that was that was a simple process. Did you taste your own hooch? Was that part of it? Oh, loved it. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Oh, loved it. Until I got told off one morning because Swaleside, it says, on an island, the Isle of Sheppey, apparently five o'clock one morning, I was very loudly telling the seagulls to fuck off, <laughs> which kind of gave the game away. That I was drunk, yeah. Uh, and one, only only one screw said, "Oh, apparently he was very vocal last night, Frank." And as soon as you said, "Oh, all right, Guff, you know, it won't happen again," yeah, that was it. Because as I say, in a roundabout way, I ne- I never had to resort to any violence to anybody that owed me anything. I I, I quickly learned other ways of, of of doing that, and I can give you one example where one particularly young fella from South London, his name was Billy, uh, there was, a, there was a, a football match was coming up. And as far as he was concerned, he was the best footballer in South London. Right. Our wing was playing another wing. He'd asked his girlfriend to bring his football boots in. So it's a Saturday morning. He owed me some tobacco. We were going down to the canteen. And, was, and on the stairs, I just happened to say to him, hey, Bill, any chance of that tobacco or phone calls? You know, whatever way you want to square it up. Oh, fuck up. He said, I'm sick of you, keep asking, you know. I thought, fair enough. So I get what I need. He's still in the queue. I'll come upstairs. I'll pass his cell. What's sitting under his bed? These football boots. So I went in and I nicked one of them. <laughs> See? So we bang up the lunch. We come out. Everyone's excited, all looking forward to going to watch the football match. He can't find his boot, can he? He's told everyone on the wing he's the best footballer in South London. Oh, wow. Can't play now, can he? Gutted. In the evening, we we get banged up. In the late afternoon, you get opened up at six o'clock. You've got two hours association. So, about ten to eight, he comes past Marcel, quite ignorantly, you know, through this tea. He's your fucking tobacco, so to speak. I went, oh, lovely, thanks, Bill. Waited till I st- he'd gone into his cell, walked up. Put me in his door, got the boot, and I threw it. And I went, here, you can have your fucking boot back now. Shut the door. Can't come get me, can he? Can't get out. Locked yeah. in. 
The next morning he comes up, he comes down the spur, he's broken the leg off the chair, he's going to come at me, silly boy, I've just been to the urn, I've just topped up a jug of boiling hot water. I just stood there and went, up to you Bill, this is going to go, you know, I didn't have to say it, this is going to go over you before that fucking chair leg's ever going to come near me. Yeah. So, sometimes psychology was better than resorting to, you know, to um, use violence, Yeah. you know. And I, yeah, I, I eventually I did have to. Two fellas tried to rob me, and, uh, and I assumed they were tall up. They weren't going to come and do it, just you know, physic uh, with their hands. And I again, I just, I just been to the urn, and uh, they pushed their way in the door, and I just launched this hot water over them. It wasn't um, premeditated. It wasn't you know putting sugar in it as people do and say yeah. it's like napalm, and you know, it wasn't like that yeah. at all. But that's what I did, and. Um, I didn't get any charges for that, and it was going to be all kinds of comebacks afterwards. And um, when people came, and uh, another fella said a, a mate of mine had left and he owed a debt. When people came to me that night and said, "Oh, Frank and I have phone cards, can I have some tobacco?" All you know, credit. Yeah. I said, "Sorry, fellas, the shop shut." Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, "No, the shop shut." I said, oh, "I'm not having people rob me." So they went and sorted it out, didn't they? They went and sorted the fellas out. Shop yeah. was open again, wasn't it? We're back in business. So there are always other ways of doing it. But, yeah, I, I did. I, I've not said it every time it happened in the book because my wife's got to read that book. Yes, of course, yeah. You know, yeah. but I'd go to church with a, a little black old boy and he uh, was coming back from the, from the church one day and he went to me, Frank, he said, you'll carry on like this. He said, they're going to call you Frank the Baptist. <laughs> and the name stuck. It, oh, it, did it, it really? It, yeah, that, so it... <laughs> It probably says a bit notorious and a bit nasty, but it it wasn't a preconceived idea. It right. wasn't. It, but what I what I did very quickly learn was there were people running around the wing, you know, with homemade tools, which yeah. they could have been nicked for. Of course, yeah. You can't get nicked for having water, can you? No. So that was my theory. Well, Frank the Baptist, in many ways, is probably a better better than Frank the Budgie. <laughs> Because I'm going to, you know, <laughs> and I say this in the best possible way, yeah. I wouldn't look at you and think, God, I bet he likes budgies. But, but you think, never know, though. I think it's a bit of a twisted logic, to be quite honest. I've said this to various people. I think it's a bit of a twisted logic because we're banged up. We're incarcerated. Yeah. And yet we're happy to have, a, you know, an, um, another, you know, being, if you like. Yeah. banged up as well was it it must have been legal then to have a budgie yeah it was I, I had three of them I, I, had, right. I had three budgies at one time uh, Queenie Boise and Alfie and um, we had someone who was breeding them on oh, the wing okay and and if, if you get them when they're very young you you can um, actually get them to talk not not as much as a jackdaw or a parrot by any means right but a few words but you have to have them. Basically, it's it's replacing their their mother, isn't it? They become so accustomed to you, okay. You know, but that's rare. That's not you know that's not every budget you ever you're ever going to get. And that was good from my point of view because it became a bit of a novelty because lots of people wanted budgies. Well, of course, what are they going to put it in? We need a budgie case, don't they? Well, of course, I'd bought the previous ones of people that had gone out, had, had left. So it was you know that was just another lucrative thing for me to you know to do. <laughs> It, it did go wrong. It did go wrong on one occasion. We had a biker called George, and he'd had murdered a, a rival biker. I'm not sure whether he was an outlaw or a 
Satan's slave, devil's desire. He wasn't, I'm not sure, or, or he was a hell's angel and whoever he'd murdered had been one, you know, from another, yeah. from another biker gang. I got on with him really well, which shocked a lot of people because at appearances, at first appearances, you wouldn't have thought we had anything in common. But I had confided in him when I was in my early teens that I wanted to be a hell's angel. So right. that kind of brought us together. We both had similar, we both liked quite heavy rock music. Yeah. So we would swap tapes and so on. I was an only a recent convert to chess. It was quite easy to believe, beat me, I can assure you. Uh, everybody in the prison must have heard when I won my first game because I screamed the place down. <laughs> And uh, so we'd sit in the cell, and we'd, we'd you know, we'd have a, a, a jug of tea, and uh, we'd play chess. So yeah, I got on with him really well. Um, he wanted a budgie, so I arranged it with this this chap to get him or to give him a budgie. And one particular lunchtime, you the, the things you do in the lunchtime, you either get your nut down and have a sleep, you know, or you might read, uh, you might write a letter to you wife or your family, your friends, whatever. People got different things that they do during that time. Some people study yeah. if, they're, if they're doing it, you know, education. And on this occasion, I thought, you know what, I actually fancy getting my head down and just have half hour. And all I could hear next door was George's budgie twittering away. So eventually, I bang on a wall and I say, for fuck's sake, George, tell your boy to shut up, will ya? I'm trying to get a kip here. Thought no more of it. Thought no more of it. We get opened up. He comes flying out of it, and I mean flying straight for me. You know, this bloke had murdered somebody, you know. And I knew he was on medication, and uh, he literally, he, he proper went for me. I just, I didn't attempt to hit him, I just sort of put my hands up. George, what the fuck are you doing, mate? And other people were standing around. And um, you have a fucking go at my boy. He had a son who wasn't that old. So in his mind, when I had said, your boy, yeah, he just assumed I was talking about his actual son. Oh. Um, I didn't realise, I hadn't worked this out at this stage. And it was horrible because I suddenly realised I was going to have to defend myself. And I didn't actually have any ill will towards him. I couldn't muster up the the anger in me, if you like. That's interesting. And But I knew I had to eventually. I knew I yeah. had to eventually. And so I then went at him. Neither of us did any damage to each other. And my, I had a friend who was also on the same spur as me, and he was also had been arrested for attempting to supply weapons to the UDA, and a, a fellow London, South London boy, Terry. Yeah. But he'd been caught in Scotland. And when he had the chance to move down to England, he could have gone to a, a lower category prison, but he chose to come to the same prison as me. And so we had 10 months together, which right. I mean, which was really good because it because then it was the only person that really understood why I was in prison, you know. Yeah. It was a mutual thing. That makes sense. And uh, he's a bit lively, Terry, but one of a better way of putting right. it. And, and I could see that he was coming very close to actually physically attacking this George as well. Again, which is not what I wanted. I just wanted it to stop. Fortunately, a couple of scr- more and more people gathered round. Some screws came along. Uh, they bundled George off, and um, one of the screws said to me, well, "You know what's happening?" As if you know, I said, "I've got no idea. I just I cannot give you an a, you know an, an explanation." I thought I'll let him do the explaining because I didn't want to say anything that might have got him in trouble. 
and um, they must have taken him to the block or somewhere. We were on association by then in the evening, and he came along, and he had a jug of hot water in his hand. And I thought, fuck this. <laughs> I, know, I know what's going to happen here, you know. And he stood in, my, in the doorway, and I was sitting down, and he went to me, we all right, sort of attitude, you know. And I yeah. went, yeah, we're, we're all right, Charles. Yeah, of course we are. Should we have a cup of tea? <laughs> now, you want to believe him, don't you? You, you? you really want to believe he's okay. Like, this is the right side of the schizophrenic, Jules. But I was still, and I'm scanning the room or the cell, thinking, how fucking quick can I be to get off this chair and stop that water getting over me? What can I grab or what can I throw at him to sort of put him off? Yeah. But he came in. And he sat down in the other chair. He, well, he bought a chair. He bought his own chair. And he sat down and we chatted. And um, that's when it became clear that the mistake was, or the the confusion was, it was the budgie I was talking about. Not <laughs> but that's how, you know, things can turn nasty over the most, you know, innocuous things. Well, please tell know? me that you had a laugh about it and you still, you're friends, oh, yeah. stay friends. Oh, uh, yeah. We, you know, we, 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 we clearly oh, okay. did stay friends after that. But that could have ended oh, yeah. very, very badly. Very, very badly. I asked you earlier on about, you know, the one thing that you wanted to sort of get from this conversation, or want the mm. message, as it were. Yeah. And you said about young people getting on the treadmill. Mm. Can you explain that? What I mean by that is I can, I can see where, particularly in this day and age, I can see what the lures are. I can see how easy it is to get hooked. Yeah. If you, if you have, Lower, you know, low esteem, if you like. Uh, if you're not sure about yourself, if you don't have that confidence, if you can see what other people have got, if you can, if you can see that uh, by being part of a bigger group, that gives you a sense of security. You don't necessarily see how easily you can be exploited once you become part of that group, and then once you start a process, the more you you try to impress the further, the more extremes you go to, to do that. If you actually acquire respect from that as well, and trust, and you you kind of rise up through the hierarchy, so to speak, Yeah. what then happens is you also take on a sense of responsibility. So you tend to start thinking less about yourself and the rest of, instead you start thinking about the rest of the group, your responsibility to them. They've bestowed this uh, leadership on you, so you need to respond. So you're constantly finding ways to lead them, impress them, set an example, because they want somebody to do that. Yeah. Well, you're on the treadmill now, aren't you? How do you get off? Clearly, there's a, there's a sense of uh, kudos that goes with that as well. Would with with the UDA? I'm trying to understand the UDA now. Mm. Were would you have said that you were soldiers? Is that what you were? Is that a wrong term? Forgive my ignorance. I, I, I think no, 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 no. I think that's, I think that's a pertinent question. Uh, I you tended to think of yourself as volunteers. I would say okay. Um, that's a, that is a good question, I, and I'm not so sure someone's ever asked me that, which is why I'm 
I've, I've not instantly that's fine responded okay. instantly responded no not 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 soldiers I've got far too much respect for soldiers and that's not just necessarily British soldiers that's soldiers in general right um, I, I, I believe they've got you know they've got certain qualities that you know others don't have uh, certainly discipline in most cases so no I, I wouldn't dare I wouldn't dare put myself in that bracket. But certainly militants, shall we say, I, I, I would I would have described us as people who talking and talking was enough, politics was enough, but it needed it needed more than that. And 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 a, and a phrase I use is one of um, I, I'm not very patient with barstool uh, preachers, right? And I've known enough of them over the years, of course, yeah. Uh, who, who sit in a pub and go, oh yeah, well, I know what I'd do. Or I know what we should do, or what somebody else should do, and basically they do fuck all about it. Whereas I will do something about it, and sometimes that can be for the good, and as I've clearly proven, sometimes that can be for the bad. You don't always identify it's bad; you think you're doing good. So, so again, even as even as I'm speaking, I'm still trying to come to terms with that question. Yeah, certainly not, certainly not soldiers. Volunteers, yes, in the sense because you're volunteering. No one's forcing you. Was the training involved? There were, there was some. There, there, there was a, uh, there was a process that was called uh, you earned your wings. So there was like a, like a bronze, silver, gold thing, um, and uh, there's basically a song called Orange Wings as right. well. Um, and the other thing to explain about the UDA is that at one time the UDA was a perfectly legal organisation. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the Ulster Freedom Fires, which was the militant wing or the military wing of the UDA. Now, that was clearly illegal. Sure. So if you, if you spoke to a, a UDA person, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were militant. They they may have had a role within the organisation in general. That could have been organising prison uh, prison visits. Uh, the LPA Lawyers Prisoners Association was collecting money for those prisoners and their families. Yeah, selling news selling newspapers, magazines, etc. And the political side of things. Okay. You know? So, in order to be sworn into the UFF, if you like, the Ulster Freedom Fighters, well then clearly you needed to be prepared to basically give up your liberty, you know, if necessary. And, and by giving up liberty, would that mean that that you would be willing to die for your belief? I, I, I'll be honest with you, I wonder how many people, how many people ever thought that through. They may, have, they may have been willing to go and take somebody else's life, I'm not so sure how many people ever question their, when worried about their own particular um, circumstances, if you like. Yeah. I certainly didn't, if I'm honest. That's And that's why I will say to people, there have been times when I've been way, way too blasé. Way, way too blasé. You, you've, I, I, I have people say to me, I don't understand. I've actually got a, a family member, and to this day I'll never understand why I went to prison, because I didn't do it for money. There was no, there was no financial gain. He, he could perfectly understand if I'd done it for personal gain, you know, or financial gain. Right. 
that's because he's never walked the same path. So he's, I don't expect him to understand to understand that. I don't, you know, the sentiment that, that's uh, and the mindset that accompanies that. I don't expect him to understand that. But again, a bit like the treadmill. Once you're on it, you're on it. You you don't look left and right, and you don't look behind you. You just tend to look in front of you, and carry on with whatever you said you will do and you need to come off that treadmill in, in, in whatever whichever way you can was there a problem with people with some people being more militant than others is it hard to unify people or was it or did you just accept that well actually some people are better off doing the website i'm not being flippant yeah. when i say no that. yeah clearly yeah, yeah. because don't because <laughs> you know throughout all of that there's trust yeah so it's all right having somebody say oh i think we should do so and so, because the, the next question is, well, are you prepared to do it? Right. Yeah. Uh, oh no, no, no. Because well, I've got a good job, and I'm not going to. Yeah. Well, why are you having this conversation then? Why are you sitting in this company having this conversation? If you're not prepared to go to prison, you know, or prepared to do certain, why are you even in this company? You should even be in this company. Right. In fact, you are you are a security risk now to this particular company that you're sitting in. Uh, and I've had lots of occasions where you've you've, you've almost had to give the impre- impression that you're going to carry out one operation because then that occupies that person. Because if that person was talking to the authorities, he's completely leading them on the wrong path. You're you're doing something completely different. So you, you kind of learn as you go. You know, where I said to you involving other things where I was clearly naive... But I'm also a good learner. I'm also a quick learner. Yeah. So I I did create my own scenarios where it gave me an opportunity to study people, if you like. We we once sent somebody on a train to go up to the Midlands with a bag, which that person was under the impression there was a gun in the bag. Right. It was something else. It wasn't a gun. But somebody else was on that train and watched him. He sweated all the way. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> sweated all the way. So can you imagine when he got off the train at the other end, could you imagine if the police had been waiting for him, ready right. to arrest him and yeah. question him? Well, I suspect he'd have told them everything. Yeah, of course. So it was just a simple little test. And when I eventually spoke to this chap and said, well, how do you feel now? in fairness to him he was quite honest and said look I'm not really sure that you know I'm up it's not civil that's what I asked you at the very very beginning just be honest with me I won't think anything less of you in fact I shall think more of you for letting me know at this stage than (laughs) than me sitting in a cell and you know I'd I'd rather you I'd rather you mention it so there were lots of different ways of identifying you know how people fit it into certain roles, if you like. I'm really interested in, in the idea of trust as well, because you mentioned in the book that um, intelligence services were, you know, that they would send sort of, I don't know, someone to spy on you, basically. I don't know what the term is. Sometimes the surveillance yeah. was blatant. Okay. You, you oh. were actually meant to know, right. because clearly that was that was a deterrent of, you know, of souls. No, in, in regards, say, internally... If you if if you like, now that wasn't always so obvious. 
there there was a case where it took us a while to realise that that somebody very very prominent from Belfast would come to London. We would discuss gathering intelligence on some very very high profile people, and that we basically wanted to target these people. And he encouraged us. He encouraged us to do that. But he would also come back at a later stage and say, listen, we've got somebody within the the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. They've had a conversation with Special Branch on the mainland. They are aware of a group of people who are conspiring to carry out certain acts. You fellas need to lay low for a while and uh, get involved with the politics, you know. Well, you might have just spent three months, six months on this high, if you like, you know, this adrenaline rush of planning to do something and putting all this time and effort into it. And they got this quite funny because they've got a phrase where they used to accuse Ian Paisley of uh, of being the grand old Duke of York, that he used to march the men up to the top of the hill, but then he's marching back down again. Well, that clearly was happening to us. And what that then does, that then makes some people close to me start to doubt my leadership because I'm telling them, oh, no, 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 it's come from the inner council or it's come from this higher profile person. It's understand. It never happened, but it would be understandable if they if they questioned me. Yeah. So eventually we, we learned that we couldn't actually trust people we should have been able to trust in fact we came to the conclusion that we'd never ever gone to Belfast and discussed what our what our targets were going to be we should never have done that because I think once we did that that's when the authority said we need to throw the net over these we need to put these out of circulation and it was ironic because also uh, an associate from the Midlands was arrested not long after me, and also the chap I said from South London, he, he yeah. was arrested in Scotland. I honestly believe that the that the, uh, the the peace process, it was the early days of the... In fact, it was before it had even been referred to as the peace process, just talks, you know, behind-the-scenes yeah. behind talks were going on. And I, I just get this feeling that the authorities here, the security services here, just said, come on, you know, we've got bigger things to deal with now. Let's just throw them out over them, scoop them up, um, and then we can concentrate on the, you know, the more important stuff, so to speak. Now, you, uh, the charge, uh, from what I understand, was um, supplying weapons. Mm. This might seem like a really silly question. How do you know whether the weapons work? I'm not being flippant when I say that. Because you've tested them. Okay. Where, where would you test them? Because if you're in, if you're in London with the places. Well, we were, we were fortunate in the, in the sense that we did know somebody that had, the sh- that had the shooting and fishing rights to a bit of, I won't say which no, geographic not part of the country. I, yeah. I may have mentioned it once before, but so there was that. And you know, you'd have a barn and you'd have things like, um, filing cabinets. You know, so yeah. you, you know you shoot from various distances, and, yeah. and f- but the trouble was, the trouble was that getting hold of firearms was, I won't say it was easy, but it was it was doable, but it was getting the ammunition 
which was sometimes more difficult. Right. More difficult. There there was an occasion, and I've spoken about this before, where we were we were offered a quantity of hand grenades. And we had a, a, a an, an ex-army associate and he actually went along and identified that they were genuine because you can only throw an hand grenade once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so we clearly wanted to test, you know, one of the contents. We wanted to select a grenade and, and see that it works. And we'd identified, or somebody had identified for us, the disused quarry where we could go and do this. But the fella concerned suddenly kind of changed. He was very helpful one minute, and I mean, they weren't cheap, you know. And um, we said we need to, you know, we need to test one of these. But on one particular occasion, one of our fellas felt he was being followed and I'm glad he, he went with his instincts because suddenly the chap who wanted to sell the hand grenades was over helpful oh yeah 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 take as many as you and we thought oh well, there's something wrong here there's something not right here what happened then was a, a few years later on one of the occasions when I was being questioned by military intelligence not special branch right the subject of uh, of hand grenades came up so we were clearly right to walk away on that occasion and, and again, I'll be quite open about it now. I'm glad that did not come to fruition. Yeah. Because can you imagine the carnage we could have caused with those grenades? And then things, then there could be retaliation as well, I'm assuming. And anything can happen, couldn't it? Well, well this is where this blasanus comes in, isn't it? Because yeah. you, 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 I'm say you feel like you're invincible. Yeah. You, you just haven't look, look you don't want to identify your own weaknesses do you no. you don't go into battle looking at your own weaknesses you look no. at the other people's weaknesses it's interesting that you said that you're glad it didn't happen and that's so that's very powerful to hear and very important to hear mm. I don't want to be overly personal but mm. obviously you're you're a leader of mm. men at this point mm. um, how a very abstract question really but how might you have felt if you possibly led those men to their death or is that too much to ask Frank no again I think you've asked a very pertinent question and I don't think anyone's asked that question before so it's it's, it's good for me that you do because yeah. it it makes me think because I clearly had never thought that far ahead yeah I just I just hadn't thought I, I was more I was more concerned about uh, harming other people, I hadn't even considered that at any stage. I probably thought about you know getting arrested and what the consequences consequences would be about the responsibility looking after the you know that particular person and his yeah. immediate family. If, you know if, if, if he had one, I've I in fact this has <laughs> has actually been put in print in a newspaper that I said in an interview in a, in a podcast that at that time you're your targets become less discerning, shall we say. Right. Because the targets in Northern Ireland were becoming less discerning. You know, civilians were being killed, you know. So where you want to believe that the chap that you're targeting is, you know, is an IRA man or an Inland man or a militant Republican you start to think, well, what about the people that support them? What about the people that help them with their logistics? What about the people that sell their newspapers? What about the money that uh, people that collect money for them? So your target list becomes more expansive, doesn't it? Yeah. 
But what goes with that is your conscience goes as well. You become less conscientious about those targets. You lump them all in the, all in the same. So, so I said um, a couple of podcasts back, I said at that time, I'd have had no qualms about going into an Irish centre and throwing a grenade. Now, on reflection, that's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. It's terrible. Apart from that, it's terrible because to think you would do it, and I've got no doubt I would have done it at the time, is, is the fact that I didn't explain it. So the podcast after that was somebody different. I mentioned that, and I said... What I should have said is, it's come across that I'd have gone into any Irish centre. There could have been a bingo session going on, yeah, with a load of old, you know, Irish old dears. That's not what I was talking about. That's not what I was talking about. I meant specific community cultural centres that I knew of, where there had been active support for the provisional IRA and the damage would have been to the buildings. As I say, not someone sitting there, you know, or someone doing Irish dancing and blowing a load of kids up. I didn't explain it as well as I should have done. Unfortunately for me, uh, a particular newspaper in Northern Ireland saw that and, and, and obviously exploited it for their own reasons. It still needs to be said that those were the extremes. Yeah. Those were the extremes. That's that. That's it again. That's that. That's that treadmill again. I'm sensing that because you, to put it mildly, you've had a very eventful life. There's a lot yeah. to reflect upon still. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. guessing that you're still trying to suss things out. Yeah, so that's oh, not definitely. unreasonable. We all do no, that in life. No. So we're all trying to understand stuff. Yeah. As we go, I've also only recently broached the subject of. I can sit here and be blasé in the sense that um, I haven't killed anybody, have I? So there may have been lots of intent, yeah, but I haven't killed anybody. Yeah. So when yeah. people say, um, "Are you sorry for what you've done, or do you regret this, or blah blah blah," and I say, "No, I don't. No, I haven't got any regrets. I'm not saying sorry." That could come across as being a little bit stubborn. That could become along as being a little bit flash, if you like. Mm. Uh, I clearly do have regrets. I regret the grief I caused my own family for a start. I, it, I actually managed to hurt people I cared about the most. Yeah. So that's not that's not clever. But as far as I'm aware, I haven't killed anybody. If the police came along now, aided and abetted by modern technology and forensics, said to me you do realise that one of the guns that you'd previously sent over, we've now identified, killed a totally innocent Catholic man. I think I said something like, he left a widow and five children, and and his mother died of a a heart attack not long after. You're not going to feel very good about yourself, are you? Because you're suddenly being confronted, right, with your action, you're responsible. Nobody else. You can't blame anybody else now. It's it's on your plate. You've got to deal with it. So it's easy for me to sit here and say, I'm all right. I don't feel any remorse. 
and equally people will say you know are you prepared to say to your own men your own volunteers the people that you led you influenced would you say to them or would you say that you regret what you did well if you say that are you telling them that they should regret what they did that's not for me to say that's for them to answer yeah yeah yeah. I accept the responsibility that I that, that I led them, and and that goes back to an earlier conversation that we had yeah. about the radicalising, where somebody said to me, "Oh, well, in a in a in a strange way, you you were radicalised over a course of time," and I said, "No, no, not at all." In fact, I laughed and said, "No, not at all. I'm the one that did the radicalising. If anything, I'm the one that took advantage of people's trust." some cases friendship I, I i i know for a fact that in some cases my friends did things for me for me yeah. not for the cause they did it out of friendship and loyalty to me in fact i'd go so far as so the majority of them yeah did did some things more for me to please me and and, and that's a, you know that's a, that's a big responsibility um i mean it, I, I don't know if any of them ever came to me they certainly haven't up to now and said look you know we we see things in a, in a different way now and um we'd like you to make a statement on you know on our behalf right uh, but that hasn't happened so i can't do that the, these things obviously they run they run very deep you know oh, yeah. there's a there's a huge history to it and i uh, weirdly when i was when i was growing up my dad one bit of advice he gave me was never to discuss irish politics he just mm. said it's just too complicated mm. and i say i don't say that flippantly or disrespectfully no, no, no. But it runs very, very deep. And I'm wondering, you know, as you're articulating your thoughts, and like you said, you, you know, we're on a podcast and you go on another podcast to kind of be more articulate and to actually say how you want to. Mm. And then it gets printed in the Irish press. Potentially, are you still a target all these years later? I, I still find myself looking at car registrations, plates. I, I still... Look at when I come out of my house in the morning. I still look at vehicles. Now that that can also be the media. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be one of three. You know, it could be a potential assassin. It could be the police waiting to arrest you or yeah. keeping you under observation, or it can be the media. So there's there's still that mindset. If, right. if you know, I've even planned out before now when I've taken certain routes to work, particularly when I used to go through. Uh, Brompton Cemetery. I, thought, I used to think that'd be appropriate, wouldn't it, if I was walking through there and someone came by on a push bike, just a push bike, come in one gate, ride along the path, you know, wow. shoot me in the head, carry on cycling and go out the other gate and then up in Fulham Road, you know. So you tend. I, I, after a while, I actually stopped walking through there because I started planning my own funeral. So it got quite morbid to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm, no, I'm not. Listen, uh, Republicanism. You know, a militant republic has got an habit of regurgitating itself after so many years. So, what if some young fella, Irish Republican, living in London, looks at my podcasts? What if he's just about to get on the same treadmill that I got on 30 years ago? Yeah. He's got something to prove, hasn't he? So, if he wants to, if he wants to prove to his newest recruits and or his paymasters back in Belfast or Londonderry it's not a bad start is it oh no we're going to shoot we're going around and uh, we're doing away with the uh, you know the ex-commander of the London UDA he was a loyalist prisoner 
is a legitimate target. I'd have thought the same at the time. That person's legitimate. So, no, I, I, I'm I'm still very conscious. I, I'm very conscious. And you are using your experiences, of course, to um, for the campaign for the Change Your Life Put Down Your Knife campaign. Mm. And uh, t- tell me about that, because I know Ben Spann would appreciate it. Well, but- uh, 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 um Via what's happened is via uh, a chap who I know you know, um, Terry Ellis, you know, as, a, as an author and a campaigner in his own right, an activist. Yeah. We we have a we have a mutual acquaintance, if you like. And what's happened is through various uh, aspects of social media, more and more people have been introduced to each other. And sometimes it's because they've written a book. Um, sometimes they share similar interests in, in, in certain campaigns. So Ben Spann, who's who's the main organizer that's you know this with this campaign, I've become aware of him via Terry, yeah, and and, and then a few other people. So again, you know, there's a kind of reluctance. I didn't want to get too too embroiled and you know over over involved because I'm trying to concentrate on my own future career, if yeah. you like. But I do believe in the message. And if there is something I can do, uh, then then I want to do that, you know. And so, you know, I purchased the, the shirt and I'm going to try and, you know, wear it as often as possible and provoke, a, you know, a conversation with people. I have done a couple of short little videos yeah, seen on, them. On, on, on Facebook um, and and Twitter, so yeah, I think it's a, it's it's a brilliant campaign, and uh, if you know if I get the chance to talk to young people, uh, a bit like I said in the in in the recent one, you know, don't be the man that's who gets the knock, don't be the man that stands in the dock, you know, don't be the man that waits for the key to turn in the lock, and don't be the man that's in the cell and or down the block, you know, that's. Uh, and you know the rest. You yeah, know, it, it's it's just don't be that. Just 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 don't be that person because there's so much more you can be. And and I know that. And I am and I am frustrated. I'm frustrated in so many ways. You know, when when it comes to creativity. And if one thing that writing my book has taught me is that it did give me a chance to re-explore that creative side of me. Yeah. So. Once I do the second book, and that's finished, yeah, I will certainly write a novel. Oh, that's great! I was going to ask you about I, the yeah, second book. I, I, I will certainly write a novel because I can then condense all my experiences and yeah. the characters that I've met and, and utilize that as much as possible. Excellent. Do you know, Frank? I think I think that's a wrap. <laughs> I think, as they say, that sounded very. That sounded too professional, didn't it? Oh, just a bit, yeah, just yeah. a bit. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. You know, I always appreciate it, and thanks again to Frank for being such a great guest. I have more podcasts coming up. I have one with Dave Courtney and Brendan that is just so utterly ridiculous and very funny, and I'd love you to listen to it. It's called Stop the Barge. 
I want to get off. But it's basically what they did during lockdown. They went to rescue a barge on behalf of uh, or with a porn star and dominatrix. And it took them nearly a fortnight to come back on this barge. It's crazy. But honestly, it's really, really good. Thank you to all the people who listen to the podcast, but also to those who've just taken a minute or two to leave a review on iTunes. It does mean an awful lot to me and it's great to get feedback. It really is. I have more amazing guests coming up. I appreciate every single person who listens to this podcast. So take care of yourselves. Please do listen in again and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now.